0: This podcast is brought to you by My Roadcast, the all new podcasting competition from Rode Microphones. Whether you are just starting out or a seasoned professional, Rode is inviting you to submit a 2-minute podcast on any topic and in any format to go in the running to win a share in $150,000 worth of prizes, including the all-new Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio. Find out more at myroadcast.com and get podcasting. This podcast is also brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design's DaVinci Resolve software combines professional offline and online editing, color correction, audio post-production, and now visual effects all in one software tool. The standard for high-end post-production, DaVinci Resolve is used for finishing more Hollywood feature films, episodic television programming, and TV commercials than any other software. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. In the rugged wilderness of Appalachia, the members of an isolated community of Pentecostal snake handlers risk their lives to attest themselves before God. This is a much different type of logline than the other entries you'll find scrolling down the list of dramatic competition entries in Sundance's program. It is the plot of Them That Follow, the feature film debut for writer-directors Britt Poulton and Dan Madison Savage, and boy, is it a doozy. Though they didn't have any directing credits prior to the film's premiere, the duo had more than enough experience between them to pull off the gripping narrative. Through years of working for other studios and other directors, they found themselves with the opportunity to quote-unquote, Get in the room. What is the room, and how do you get in it? Well, and not to use a cliche lightly here, but the answer may surprise you. We also talked through writing a story about a secretive community with limited access, filling in the blanks with your own personal experiences, and working with an incredible cast that included Olivia Colman, Walton Goggins, Jim Gaffigan, and more. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. This is John, and I am here at Park City once again um, with two very special guests. I'm going to let you guys introduce
1: yourselves so that the audience can get familiar with your voices.
2: I'm Brett Polton,
1: And I'm Dan Madison Savage, and we are the writers and directors of Them That Follow. And um, I think I'm just going to start with this is uh, both of yours first feature, um, which is
0: awesome. Congratulations. It must be an amazing feeling to have that premiere here at Sundance.
2: Thank you so much. It really is a life stream come true. Uh, we both had very, very personal um, hopes to um, play at Sundance. I grew up mostly in Utah and Winchester Hills, so I wanted to be at Sundance before I knew what I wanted to be, frankly, and to have stood on stage at Eccles Theater with 1,300 people staring back at me. I I was overwhelmed. I don't know where I go from here because it was wild. My heart was bursting out of my chest, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of such a collaborative, special family that is Sundance.
1: Yeah, and Eccles is huge for the listeners. That's the biggest theater here at Park City. It was tremendous, <laughs> absolutely tremendous. You know, I I did always want to be a filmmaker, even when I was a younger kid. Um I remember having to wait 12 months, 18 months, to get DVDs, a blockbuster of films that I'd read about at Sundance. Um, Meanwhile, the new festival was already underway. And so to be here at Sundance with our film, it's just a dream of a lifetime. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to finish thanking John Cooper and Kim Yutani for welcoming us here. Well, you guys both talk about how this has been a lifelong dream of yours. And I was wondering, actually,
0: if you could tell us what you what roles you played um, in film production before you were actually able to step into the director's chair and how that might have aided you um, in directing.
2: Sure. I wore a few different hats before I became a director. My first real job in film was working as a director's assistant. I worked for James Wan on Insidious and that was an extraordinary education. It was a micro-budget film. Uh, It actually, the first budget was just south of a million dollars and it was very ambitious uh, from visual effects and uh, from visual effects and special effects to make a film well on that budget, it was quite an endeavor, and I was alongside that process at every step of the way. So I, I learned a lot um, in terms of how every department works and soup to nuts how you physically make a movie. Because James was so generous to include me in every meeting, and and so I was really a fly on the wall and I learned a great deal from him and from there I worked on Paranormal Activity 2 for Jason Blum so then I got to see the producing side of making a movie and again an extraordinary education and from there I went to USC's uh, producing program the Peter Stark program which is where I met Daniel and uh, while I was in school there I worked for Fox Searchlight in production and development and from there I uh, pivoted over to acquisitions so I've actually been to the Sundance Film Festival with Fox Searchlight three times and I was seated at the other side of the table and I got to see how deals are made, uh, what priorities distributors have in acquiring material, what what um, comes into play when they're analyzing which projects to take on in terms of marketing and distribution and I got a real bird's eye view over uh, the landscape of like independent cinema working for Fox Searchlight and that was a great education as I uh, pursued my own ambitions as an independent filmmaker
0: so you did everything <laughs> essentially
1: yeah Britt definitely has a better resume than <laughs> I in that regard <laughs> um I studied film history at Vassar grad school at USC did film producing where I met Britt. I worked for filmmaker Carl Carl Eric Rinch on 47 Ronin and then worked a little bit at Summit Entertainment um and all of that was an extraordinary education, but what I know is true is that when we started writing this script, that's truly when I felt like I began my education as a filmmaker. This was the first screenplay that either of us ever wrote. We taught ourselves how to write. We taught each other how to write. We were brave, and we were braver because of each other and because of our friendship. And so I guess for everyone listening, I think what I just want to say is like, be brave. You find your story and start telling it and start fighting for it because you don't need anything more than to be kind and have something to say to make a movie and to make a good movie.
2: And I want to add, um, working at Fox Searchlight at a studio that attracts the best and the brightest talent out there, it was emboldening to me to see how hard they worked for it. And I realized that if I wanted it, the only thing... The only difference between me and them was working hard enough and putting myself in the room, and that was really inspiring and galvanizing for me. Um, just seeing that they were regular people uh, that just happened to, you know, work their asses off, and I think that that's a great lesson um, for any aspiring filmmakers that feel a little bit on the outside, because um, it really de- demystified this sort of business for me. Was seeing that. These people aren't unicorns. They just worked hard and stayed with it and stayed committed and, you know, picked the right partners and and stayed the course. And I think that for me anyways, that was very inspiring to see that, you know, we're not so different and if I work my tail off too and put myself, you know, and fight for a seat at the table, I can have one.
1: You know, I just wanted to follow up on that as well and I think Your partners, your friends in this process are the teachers that you need. Britt taught me how to write. Our producers taught me how to make a movie. Mm -hmm. Our cinematographer taught us how to shoot a movie. And it was really just doing it that taught us how to do it and brought us to Mm -hmm. Sundance. Mm -hmm. Um, So just start doing it. Yeah, there's Mm -hmm. no better education.
2: Just doing it.
0: (laughs) So you used a term that I just want to latch on for a sec. and that was putting yourself in the room. Yes. Um, can you talk, expand a little bit more about what that means for an aspiring filmmaker? Like how uh, how important is putting yourself in the room? What is the room, and how do you put yourself there?
2: What is the room? What is the room? Know. Is you the know, room? It's sort of like
1: <laughs> there is no room. Ooh. It's,
2: I'm the room is.
1: Yeah, the room put is. Yourself the put yourself on the line. Yeah, the room is. Your living room where you're talking about a story idea with your friend and then they flip it upside down and invert it and it's this sparkling new thing that makes both of you feel alive. Mm. You know, the room is, are the people that you welcome into your life and into your collaborative process. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I love that. I think that what Dan's pointing towards is exploring and exposing yourself and that's what putting yourself in the room is
0: that's great and i love there is no room reminds (laughs) me of the matrix Um, (laughs) um so i mean talking about you know your own personal stories uh that you're looking to tell this story was i mean you know it grabbed me from the beginning in terms of like just seeing it written out i knew that i wanted to see this movie i knew that i wanted to get a ticket to it the synopsis uh can you tell us a little bit about what the story of them that follow is and then we'll get into
1: how you were able to write this thing so them that follow is an exploration of pentecostal snake handling which is the century old practice of handling venomous rattlesnakes as proof of faith in god and our film dives into this unseen and we believe often misunderstood way of life and it does through it does so through the lens of a young woman, a pastor's daughter, uh, played by Alice Englert, whose forbidden relationship forces her to confront the very dangerous traditions of her father, uh, played by Walton Goggins and his church. Uh, it is a meditation on faith and family, what happens when our loyalties to those come into conflict. But more than anything, it is a coming of age story.
2: We were really interested in exploring a coming-of-age story set in a religious community. For me, it started from a personal place. I grew up in a religious home and community. My family has belonged to the LDS Church for generations and has meaningful ties to not only the religion but its history. And that framed my existence as a child. It was literally the lens through which I saw the world. And I really struggled through that as I set out to forge an identity beyond my family and beyond the culture I was born into, as I tried to figure out what um, what value system I had as a young person, because what I kept experiencing as I was coming of age throughout my adolescence was what I was feeling was not what I knew and what I was being told. And reconciling the difference uh, between your head and your heart is hard enough for anyone, but for a young person um, whose world is, whose world is being defined and shaped for them, um, that's really confining, and it certainly was for me. So I wanted to explore uh, the themes of my own adolescence, um, and that's why this world was so compelling to me because I could do so in a way that wasn't autobiographical. I don't think I have enough therapy uh, <laughs> to <laughs> to be brave enough to explore my own story and, and maybe it's just not so interesting. I really wanted to um, explore those themes and, and really um, poke at or probe at uh, when what we feel and what we know comes into conflict and, and we, we put our characters feet to the fire in that respect and we ask that question of each character in our story and they all answer it differently and and that's something that Dan and I were really passionate about and certain um, in our pursuit of this story and how we wanted to render it was that every person would have a different relationship to their faith. Every person would come to a different conclusion by the story's end because we wanted to explore many different perspectives. We didn't want to impose our own judgment on community or especially a community of faith. And
0: um, yeah, I mean, that's great. It sounds like, you know, uh, since you were dealing with such a secretive community, um, you were able to fill in a lot of the blanks with your own personal experiences. Um, Can you talk about like the type of access you actually had to the community that you were telling a story about?
1: So as Britt said, uh, snake handlers are a misunderstood and often maligned community. And it goes even further than that. They are actually persecuted by the state under ancillary penal codes uh, and the churches are raided, pastors are arrested, and so by necessity, these communities are often very reclusive. Uh, That being said, they're all different. Uh, There is no one unitary or ideal snake handling church. Each of them is unique. Each of them has their own faith practices. Each of them has their own rigidity. Each of them has their own... Uh, individual relationship to the secular world. And so our film, and it's something we really um, want to make clear, is a fictional account. Uh, we took the burden of representation very, very seriously, um, but we to fill in the gaps when necessary. We pulled from uh, Christian teachings, uh, other Christian practices, uh, from other uh, stories in the Bible to sort of create a fuller uh, portrait of this very, very private and insular community. Um, And so we did have some contact with snake handling uh, pastors. We were really hoping to take the cast uh, with us, uh, but unfortunately we were not able to. We visited several Pentecostal churches um, and they were extraordinarily welcoming, uh, extraordinarily generous to us, uh, so kind uh, and educational with the cast. And And some of those folks even joined us on set um, as extras and, and we were really, really excited to have them.
2: Yeah, I want to add, um, as Dan said, that we visited with the cast and some crew, Pentecostal churches in the Ohio area where we were shooting. And it was extraordinary. Dan and I had done so much research on Pentecostalism and watched so many YouTube videos and read books. But to be embraced by the community in the way that we were and to walk through... Um, those doors and into a very special and sacred place to these people and to be embraced so warmly. Uh, It was a really special experience. It really bonded the cast and crew. And it struck me how dazzling their faith practice is, how they live their relationship with God and the divine out loud in a way that I've never seen. When I grew up going to church, your sort of faith and your relationship to uh, Christ is very private and insular and you sit in the pews quietly and Pentecostal churches do nothing quietly and it's, it's rousing and electric and they speak in tongues and they stand up and they move their bodies and I understood. Emotionally, for the first time, being in that space and feeling that collective energy, that searing, soaring energy, why people come to church every Sunday and how cathartic it must be to exercise whatever's inside of you and to excise whatever's inside of you uh, with a community and with people and a shared experience. Um, it was dazzling, and I, have, I, I had a, a really renewed respect and appreciation for this faith practice. And again, we didn't visit snake-handling churches, but Pentecostalism is a broader umbrella under which, uh, over which snake-handling churches reside, so it's very similar in the way they worship.
0: This podcast is brought to you by My Roadcast the all-new podcasting competition from Rode Microphones. Rode is inviting podcasters of all experience levels to showcase their talents. Submit an incredible two-minute podcast on any topic and in any format to go in the running to win a share in $150,000 worth of prizes, including the all-new Rodecaster Pro Production Studio, Rode Pod mics, headphones from Urban Ears, Adobe Subscriptions, and heaps more, Find out how to enter, who will be judging, and see the full list of prizes at MyRoadCast.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design has grown rapidly to become one of the world's leading innovators and manufacturers of creative video technology. The company's philosophy is refreshing and simple. To help true creativity blossom by allowing the highest quality video to be affordable to everyone, Its products include the world's highest quality video editing products, digital film cameras, color correctors, live production switchers, and a host of other hardware for the feature film, post-production, and television broadcast industries. The Pocket Cinema Camera 4K is Blackmagic Design's new next-generation 4K handheld camera. It comes with dual-native ISO with an amazing up to 25,600 ISO for incredible light performance, a full four-thirds HDR sensor, and 13 stops of dynamic range. It also comes with both ProRes or RAW recording to internal uhs ii and CFAS cards, or even external USB-C drives, eliminating the need for expensive external recorders. It struck me in the Q&A after uh, how informed Alice was uh, just about the whole religion and what you guys were doing. Can you talk a little bit about, about maybe how you helped to like facilitate or like give them resources to research in their own preparation for their roles?
1: Or was that just all her? (laughs) A lot of it was her. You know, our film was very low budget. um, And so all of our collaborators put a lot of sweat equity into this film. And it was their passion uh, and their commitment that got us to the finish line. Um, Alice, we uh, provided her with books. There's an extraordinary uh, nonfiction uh, account of snake handling called Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington. That was an extraordinary resource for us. Um, that was the sort of launching point and Alice uh, went from there and she really uh, delved into the history of this practice uh, to center herself and her character and she worked extensively with a dialect coach. Uh, She's from Australia uh, and you wouldn't know it watching the movie. All of our cast worked with dialect coaches and my gosh is it extraordinary. Um, And I think that's really the story of this film and and this research is just the extraordinary lengths uh, that so many people went uh, to help us render this community authentically and with integrity and with respect. Uh, And when we met with all of our collaborators for the very first time, that's what we said to them. They shared those values. Those were their goals as well. And we went off into the woods together to make it happen. Okay, so I guess I'm going to have to wrap
0: up here, which is a shame because, like, I could really talk about this movie for a lot longer. There's so much there to unpack. Um, And I will say that, like the question of representation is such a hot button issue these days, especially for um, someone who watches a lot of movies and is able to like, see, or just question certain filmmakers decisions to tell a certain story that maybe they're not licensed to tell. And for what purpose they've told that story. And I never felt that way with you guys. And I think that like, it's really a remarkable piece of work. Um, And I just want to end the the podcast with a question that I ask all my guests and that's uh, if you had any advice to aspiring filmmakers just trying to get out there and make their first feature and end up at Sundance <laughs> what would it be?
2: Yes my best piece of advice is to build your community your community of collaborators of friends of family of people that will hold you up and support you because this is a long road as we said in this lovely interview you know it took us almost six years to get this movie made so there was a lot of uh, dark nights where we wondered if we were ever going to be able to bring this story to an audience and if it wasn't for you know my incredible family who <laughs> was patient and certain that I would achieve my dreams if it wasn't for the extraordinary group of women that support me, if it wasn't for our partners on this project, I don't know if I would've stayed the course. I don't know if I would've held the faith in myself that if they didn't hold it in me. So that's my first and foremost, is that this is a long process and you need a community of good people around you um, that will challenge you and inspire you. And I think that, I. Th- I think that that is the like my number one, and and of course treat others the way you want to be treated. My mama always said that, rule. and I have to tell you that this business is is small, and memories are long, and it's really important that you value other people and their work, and you don't take um, it for granted.
1: I think what Britt said is. Everything that she said is correct, and I guess the one piece that I'll add, which is really the guiding light, the guiding principle of our set, is that you don't need to be right, you just need to get it right. And on set, things are going to go wrong, uh, and the solution can come from anywhere. You might have it, your DP might have it, the stand-in might have it. The star might have it, the producer might have it. You really never know where the right answer is going to come from. And so you just need to be open uh, and just embrace the collaborative nature of this medium. It is what makes it So so special, assembling different voices, bringing them together, unifying them on a project. That is what leads to a strong film, is many voices in the room all speaking Around a big, wide, circular table where no one sits at the head. That's great
0: advice, guys. This was an absolute pleasure. Um, great way to start off my morning, <laughs> and I guess a great way to end your Sundance. Are you are you done now, or we're never done? Never done.
1: Good.
2: <laughs> it's never over. <laughs> no one's ever done.
1: Final piece of advice: It's never <laughs> over. <laughs> and with that, oh,
2: wait, I do want to say one other thing because I, it's it's something I don't know if people realize. Making movies is not a job, it's a lifestyle. And be mindful of who you let in your life. Great.
0: (laughs) All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. Give us a rating if you like us and stay tuned every Monday for a new interview episode of the No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. You can follow No Film School at No Film School. And of course, visit the site to learn all about the art of filmmaking. Until next week.